When Danielle was 11, she went out for Halloween to trick-or-treat. But just a few days later, her candy started to mysteriously disappear. November 4th. My Halloween candy is like so running out, but I barely ate none of it. When my back is turned, Devin, Michael, mom, or dad are digging their hands in it. I don't mind sharing, but those cocksucks could ask. That's Danielle, clearly feeling a bit angry about her Halloween candy. I'm Dan Meisner, and this, this, right now, is grown-ups read things they wrote as kids. How are you doing? It is very, very nice to see you. This is a show where we go back in time to remember the good, the bad, and the awkward parts of growing up. This time, recorded live in Saskatoon, we have giant tarantulas, a message from the Pope about drugs, an amazing story of survival in southern Montana, and much, much more. This stuff is weird, it is wonderful, and it can help us understand who we are. So think about who you were when you were a kid, and stick around. By definition, a fable is a short story with a moral lesson. And though it's not a rule, a lot of fables do feature animals. When our next reader, Dylan, was in grade three, he decided to write a few fables of his own. They definitely featured animals, and I'm pretty sure there are morals to these stories, but you may have to listen closely to understand what they are. Live on stage in Saskatoon, here's Dylan reading two stories, starting with Why Moles Dig Underground. Once long ago, moles flew in the sky with the birds. One, one mole, though, was a mean one. He flew down after hunts and meat-napped all of the meat. The people of the village thought the mole should be killed, while some thought they should capture it. So they went to the elder. What should we do, O great elder? The people bellowed. Why, silence, the elder yelled. We will have to kill it. No, some voices yelled. The crowd turned around to see it came from two young children, a boy and a girl. You can't kill that flying mole, the boy said. Yes, we can, the elder said. Well, let's ask your dad about this, said the girl, and so the people went to go see the elder's dad. (laughs) Meanwhile, the mole was flying high in the sky and saw that some of the people were carrying meat with them. Nab it, he thought. So, zoom, he swooped down and grabbed meat from the people. Quick, we will have to hurry, or more meat we will lose, the chef said. When they got there, the elder's dad spoke at once. Son, I am very disappointed with you. People, I hear you are having trouble with the flying mole. I will send a bird to tell him to come speak with me, and then I will strip him of his wings. See, we knew there was another way, the children said. The mole was stealing meat from a nearby village when a magpie flew down and told the mole to come with him. Fine, the mole said, and followed the magpie into the sky towards the elder's dad. The mole knew he was in trouble, and halfway there he dropped down and turned around. This made the elder's dad angry. Using magic, he made a hole under the mole and threw lightning bolts at the mole's wings. The lightning destroyed the mole's wings, and he fell into the hole. Mole, you have bothered the people, and now you ignore me. You shall now have to live underground, said the dad. (laughs) There was a big celebration from the people honoring the elder's dad. Ever since then, moles have lived underground. Sometimes you can see them pop their heads out of the holes when they want to look up at the sky where they used to live. Aww. 
I got one last one. It's entitled Invasion of the Giant Tarantulas. In a little peaceful town far away known as Spokane, there lived... <laughs> I'm not from Spokane. There lived a kid named Dylan. He had two cool friends named Chris and Eric. They were doing a report on tarantulas. The name of the report was, What Makes Tarantulas So Big? During recess, they found a small tarantula and they put it with Chris's, which was much larger. I wonder why this tarantula is bigger than this one, Eric said. Well, wait, Eric, doesn't your dad work at the town lab, Dylan asked. Yeah, he does. Quick, to the town lab, Chris yelled. So the three got on their bikes and headed downtown. When they got to the lab, Eric's dad welcomed them in. Do you know anything about getting a spider bigger? Chris said. Yes, I do. I have something that will get your spider right pumped up, Eric's dad said. Here, take this. Well, what is it? Asked Dylan. It is a batch of my supersonic tremendous growth potion, said Eric's dad. So when they got home, the big tarantula had given birth to hundreds of babies. I'm sorry that I didn't tell you I was pregnant before. <laughs> Chris went and took the spiders outside. I hope this works, he said, and sprayed some of the potion on the spiders. The tarantula has grown bigger till they were humongous and taller than his house. They started to walk away and were crushing everything. Oh man, we gotta stop them. We're gonna fail our report, Dylan said. <laughs> I know what to do, said Eric. We need killer dolphins. <laughs> Quick, to the aquarium, Chris yelled. There's no aquarium in Spokane. When they got there, they sprayed some of the supersonic tremendous growth potion on the dolphins. They true grew humongous. Now, let's go get those tarantulas, Eric said. When they got to the tarantulas, the dolphins sprang into action. The tarantulas and dolphins battled on rubble because it was two days later and the tarantulas did a lot of damage. It was very impressive and there were lots of explosions. In, in 10 minutes, the tarantulas were dead and the dolphins were back to their original size. The battle was over and the dolphins won. The end. Thank you very much. I love how when Dylan was describing the giant tarantulas larger than a house, somebody over here went, Whoa, as though they were real. When Kate was seven, she was like a lot of kids in that she was losing her baby teeth. And like a lot of kids, she kept up a pretty regular correspondence with the tooth fairy. But as you'll hear, Kate's relationship with the Tooth Fairy had its ups and downs. Dear Tooth Fairy, I can't find my tooth. Will you still give me some money? <laughs> Dear Tooth Fairy, I'm sorry, I don't have a tooth for you. My dad lost it. Do you believe me? Or do you think it's a prank so I'll get money? I hope you don't think so. I'm truly very sorry. I don't deserve the money. Although I would appreciate it, I don't need it. From Kate. P.S. I hope you find it because I know my dad won't. <laughs> Dear Tooth Fairy, read this note in the day if you could. I'm very angry with you now. Because you put the toonie in the wrong spot. So, for your punishment... <laughs> For one time, on purpose, I will not give my tooth. 
and mark my words, the tooth shall be hiding well. <laughs> and when you put the toonie under my pillow, make sure it's in the middle. <laughs> Signed, Kate. P.S. Make a merk that I know you read it, angry face. So the tooth fairy did reply to my note in this beautiful, sparkly, iridescent, purple handwriting with just one word, sorry. <laughs> Dear Tooth Fairy, I am so sorry about how I acted when I couldn't find my money. <laughs> I still feel very bad even though it was so long ago. Please forgive me. From Kate. P.S. Happy Valentine's Day. <laughs> Thank you. Poetry is always popular at grown-ups read things they wrote as kids, especially teenage poetry, which often has that perfect mix of angst and naivete. When Kevin was 14 and 15, he wrote a lot of poems. And as a teenager, he anthologized his work into a collection entitled Philosophy and Signs of Insanity. And at our Saskatoon show, he shared a couple of selections. We're going to hear poems such as Dignified Cheerios, The Jungle Swing in My Brain, and Ode to Peanut Butter. Please welcome to the Grown Up Street Things They Wrote as Kids stage, Kevin. In the recesses of twisted mind, nestled near joy and pain, my thoughts stumble, messed and blind to the jungle swing in my brain. <laughs> Dissolving as I visualize, my train of thought goes round. Occurrences behind my eyes are there, but make no sound. Thoughts climb the lonely creaking stairs more insanely than they ought. Swing out my griefs, my fears, my cares into the abyss of thought. They fall through my contentedly, my contentedly tortured soul like purple burning snow. Overfilled, but not all there, a donut without a hole. Where does that scream come from? I'm too confused to know. This is Dignified Cheerios. <laughs> Perched in his marshmallow tower, surrounded by trinkets and curios, resides the embodiment of power, the muncher of Dignified Cheerios. <laughs> he suits up in his bright pink attire, grabbing his summertime snowblower. His fractured mind plots and conspires, for of his strange deeds he is sower. For fairies, he makes Persian rugs. He moonlights as a big pen mechanic. 
the hot pizza oven he unplugs, calmly eats corn nuts, then panics. He marathons smugly in galoshes, styles his hair with car grease. He attends concerts and moshes, and then circulates tracks for world peace. But he doesn't believe in democracy, and yesterday he ran out of milk. This is untitled. Fear atrocities you find within man's heart and soul and mind, gaining power in hearts of stone through evil thoughts and actions roam. Contained in silence, savage sin, voices raging on within, in psychopath and little child, in bridled hate and passions wild, starless, cloudless, blackest night, twisted wisdom clouding right, Mankind's companion since the fall, the beast, the sickness in us all. <laughs> so in a, in a similar vein, an ode to peanut butter. <laughs> this is a Shakespearean sonnet, an iambic pentameter. So not, nod to my grade nine English teacher. Upon the dawning of the shining morn, amidst the sounds of dawn, hark, hear me mutter. Be forewarned, lest you inspire scorn. Do not deprive me of my peanut butter. <laughs> it is the salve alleviating pain. A happiness elixir tis to me. It's my umbrella from life's pouring rain. An edible lifeboat amidst life's sea. It calms my nerves and keeps me satisfied. It is my companion to the end. When I sat alone in pain and cried, peanut butter came and was my friend. <laughs> so until prostrate I lay within a hearse, peanut butter is my universe. When Luke was in grade seven, he took a creative writing course in school. And for one of his assignments, he wrote a story about wilderness survival set in southern Montana. Now, there are two things you need to know about this story. First, though it was set in southern Montana, Luke had never actually been to Montana. And as he explained, It's not a triumph of writing, but it is an early triumph of uh, really using margins to stretch a single page <laughs> into, uh, into three pages. So this is a, uh, a harrowing tale of survival entitled Surviving in South Montana. Fred was on a plane to Montana when he heard attention all passengers aboard. We have lost control of the airplane. That was all Fred heard before he blacked out. When he came to, he wished he hadn't because he thought of the thing that just happened. He did the first thing that came to mind. 
He rummaged through everything in the suitcases. He found matches, newspapers, oil, and a fishing rod and hook. He looked around, and to his surprise, he found a little puppy. He looked at the tag. Hunter, it said. He looked around for anything more, but all he found were some old magazines. Remember that detail. He was glad he didn't know anyone on the plane, for he had been traveling alone. Well, he tried to find where he was, and then realized that they had been just above Montana. He realized that five more minutes, and he would have been arriving safely at Aunt Doris's house. <laughs> so close. Well, that can't be helped now, Fred sighed. Fred went off into the woods, hoping to find shelter. Eventually, he found a place where an avalanche had probably happened. <laughs> there was a shelter of rocks that he could sleep in, and he did. He used old, dry leaves as a blanket. He tried to light a fire, but the wood was too wet. He choked and thought of all the people that died in the crash. The next day, he finally felt the horrible pain in his arm, and he realized that it must be broken because he couldn't move it. He found Hunter was awake. Fred wished that he could be as happy as Hunter was. Hunter had obviously forgotten about the crash. Well, he was a dog. He looked out and saw a deer. He remembered that he had made a dart blower out of wood, and he had found berries that were poisonous. According to the wildlife magazine that he had picked up, he stuck a piece of sharp wood in, and within seven seconds, the deer died. They lived like that for a long time. One day, they found a stream, and they caught a trout. He skinned it carefully and ate it raw, since he had no fire. It wasn't the greatest meal, but it was filling. He gave Hunter some, and he gave a yelp. The next day, however, Hunter was missing. He searched for hours, but he could not find him. So he went for a couple of days, and then he found Hunter's collar. He searched, and then found Hunter. He had been scratched by something. Fred looked up and saw a big grizzly bear. He tried to run, but it was no use. The bear clawed him in the arm. He fell in pain. The bear was about to finish him off when Hunter bit the bear's arm. The bear gave a wince of pain and ran off. The next day, they went back to the stream and followed it. Sure enough, they found a road and hitchhiked their way to Aunt Doris's house. On the way, Fred told the driver about his story, and the driver did not believe him at all. Neither would I. The end. Our next reader, Camille, grew up in the 1990s, but she had a fascination with a previous decade, the disco generation of the 70s. And she expressed that fascination through verse. 
Uh, this is one of many of a series of what I called hippie poems, what I thought I knew about the 70s culture. And this one is called Disco Cass, written in 1994. <laughs> Disco Cass was a big mama dude. She liked to get in the groovy mood. The disco hall was her place to hang. She had a tambourine that went clang. She had an afro as high as heaven and bell-bottoms that she called Kevin. <laughs> One day, Mama got in some trouble, so she had to run away on the double. You see, it's illegal to smoke dope. So Mama went to confess to the Pope. Pope said, it's groovy, child. Even I smoke dope once in a while. So Disco Cass went back to the hall and gladly said, free dope for all. Thank you. When Jessica was a teenager, she and her friend had exactly the same birthday. And the year they both turned 17, they decided to celebrate by going on a very, very long walk together. They baked themselves a cake, and Jessica says they had a bottle of tequila. And on the walk, <laughs> Jessica wrote this poem. Please welcome her to our stage. Okay, so appropriately, it's titled Cakewalk. <clears throat> One. Sitting on the wooden train bridge, sipping at the bittersweet golden instrumental nectar. Cocoa bear, stuffed full of rich delicacy, lift up your paw and allow us to cross the barrier into the night. Two. Surrounded by pillars of crisp light, white as the eyes of a jackal, we christen the velvety cold November sky with topaz jewels that slide like silk down our burnt avalanche throats. <laughs> as our silent partner swings his way by, complex in his glass simplicity. Three. Ground zero, apocalyptic concrete soothes like a Jesus furnace. <laughs> Savior of bitten red apple cheeks, a faithful hum emitted from our technology-scorched society. Assassinates the chocolate virgin pixies frozen, lush, in the stale air. Four. <laughs> Elegant ladies of Grecian goddess stature powder their masks marbled white, painting on melancholy faces never to be seen by handsome Greek gods. Liquid pink soap washes away tequila tears. <laughs> 
five. An expressionless, wanton slumber hangs effortlessly on the searing white wall. Two hundred eyes stare from a hundred empty drone desks, watching the dancing girl, a relic of a generation lost to chalkboard dreams. <laughs> Six. <clears throat> Climbing the dirt summit over the mountain of rainbow desires to reach the playground, Shangri-La. <laughs> Glistening like mirage fairies under the amber glare, slide down the aluminum snake and land in a pit of sandy despair. Seven. Yellow mighty mouths like giant glowing arches consume crisp fingers of fried potatoes. <laughs> Brown, spongy magnificence, iced with sugary bliss, is shared with two boys as we bathe in our effervescent solitude. Well parked in a beige van as stars as stars twinkle by, cruising for perfection. Eight. A slippery white roof exalted over the heads of the people. Young Clarence, wrapped in a navy blue sweater, waits for Ruth to seduce him with her sweetgrass charms. But he is left with sultry Taylor, bearing mere gifts of fried chicken, to his persistent pout. Nine. The end of a walking epic, an unfulfilled quest, seeking answers to mystic truths, not willing to be bared to our precocious minds, overflowing of lemon iced tea. The wallpaper watches with many chestnut eyes as our heavy heads lay down to a final Deserve it rest. 10. The train bridge tranquility seems like it exists only in a past life, so far off, away, as we are reincarnated into the present. Thank you. <laughs> What I love about Jessica's poem is you can really tell how far into the tequila they had gotten at every step of the way. That is Grown Ups Read Things They Wrote as Kids. Our show was recorded live at the Cosmo Senior Center in Saskatoon as part of Winterruption 2017 and produced by Jenna Meisner. Our associate producer is Olivia Nashmi and our music is by Poddington Bear and Lullatone. Our closing theme is Oh Dear Diary by Sloan. 
I would love to hear the things you wrote when you were a kid. We have upcoming live shows in St. Albert, Calgary, Sudbury, Ottawa, Vancouver, Victoria, Peterborough, and beyond. For all of the details, you can visit our website, grownups.fm. That's also where you can sign up for our email newsletter, which is the first place we announce new live shows. Sign up, and we'll hope to see you soon. I'm Dan Meisner. Thanks for listening. See